As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello there, Justin Briley here. Welcome to the continuation of a live stream conversation which I hosted with Alistair McGrath alongside my wife Lucy Briley and my colleague Ruth Jackson back in 2020. Ruth, of course, still on maternity leave at the moment, but she will be back soon, which is great news. Now, at the time, Alistair had just released his memoir, Through a Glass Darkly, Journeys Through Science, Faith and Doubt. So you'll be hearing more of his answers to the listeners who were part of this special live stream. Thanks again to everyone who came in person or online to our unbelievable conversation last week. Alistair, of course, was delivering one of the keynote addresses, participating in a roundtable, and there were loads of other great guest seminars and topics. But if you couldn't make it, you can get hold of the digital download of the conference at premierunbelievable.com. Just click on shop. Also, that's the place to sign up for our newsletter and keep informed about all things Premier Unbelievable. Our new podcasts as well, Unapologetic, including the ones that you know and love already. Unbelievable, Ask N.T. Write Anything, Matters of Life and Death. Uh, so uh, if you are ready, let's get into the second part of this listener Q&A conversation from the archives with Alistair. We've got some more questions on, on science in just a moment. I just want to remind anyone who's watching, though, that uh, the reason we've got Alistair on today is he's just published this book, through a glass darkly journeys through science faith and doubt i did read somewhere that this might be your last book alistair is that uh, is that true I, I i'm afraid it is i mean i've been writing books for um, nearly 30 years and i think i think i've got addicted to doing it so i tried <laughs> to break the habit <laughs> wow <laughs> i'm writing research articles instead but i will revise my textbooks and things like that but basically i i, I think um i think i've written enough books <laughs> Well, we'll we'll see how you feel about we've, that in a year's we've, time. We've got plenty of them on our shelves. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, well, look, um, still, still, lots of questions coming in in on science. Um, now, here, here's here's obviously one that many people ask. Um, this is Ben Peters asking it this time now. But how does Dr. McGrath understand evolution and Adam and Eve? Uh, what about the flood and all the big debates, essentially, in Genesis one to eleven? But especially Adam and Eve is what Ben wants to know about. Do you, what do you take as a framework for that? He asked, do you, ta- do you take an analogical view of Genesis? I'm not even sure I quite know what that means, but um, what, 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 how do you put together the, the creation story, the Adam and Eve story in Genesis with your view uh, of evolution and so on? 
I think that that's a very important point. And actually, it's not simply about science. It's about Old Testament interpretation. And you have uh, some wonderful um, studies on um, biblical interpretation coming out from um, evangelical scholars at the moment, which is really, I think, helping us to see how we can reread the book of Genesis in ways that are very, very exciting and very, very helpful. I think one of the points I, I would make is that we have to learn, I think, to to realize that um, there's a very big distinction between biblical authority and biblical interpretation. When I say I affirm the authority of Bible, that doesn't actually commit me to any particular way of interpreting. I've got to figure out what's the right way of interpreting each individual passage. And of course, the other point is that, you know, the, the whole Old Testament talks about creation, not just, you know, the first two chapters of Genesis. So we really need to try and make sure that we have a, a total biblical view of creation, not just limiting ourselves to the first two chapters of this. And I, I go with an early Christian writer called Augustine of Hippo, and he was writing in the year 400. And he, said, he wrote a book called The Literal Meaning of Genesis, and it does exactly what it says on the tin. You know, he's just saying, um, as I read Genesis, here is what I see. I see God creates the world in an instant like that, but it then develops under God's providence. In other words, you have an initial act of creation, you have an unfolding, a development of this. And of course, you can see how that fits in astonishingly well with what many scientists would think. But of course, Augustine was writing 1500 years before Darwin and had no idea of Darwin. He was just saying this seems to me to be the right way of reading Genesis. So there is an issue here about biblical interpretation. What do I make of Adam and Eve? I'm not quite sure because they may well be representative figures. I think that's a very important point to make. What I would say is that um, there is an issue here about the emphasis that we bring to this. And for me, um, as I asked the question, what is the book of Genesis trying to say to me? It is that God is the author of everything that we see, that actually we need to see that God is the one who brings all of this into um, into existence. For me, I don't think things like chronology and so on are of ultimate importance. It's much more this idea that God is the one who gets the whole thing underway and that the created order in some way bears witness to the presence and activity of this God. So there is here an issue about emphasis. But what I will say is that Christians do disagree about these issues. We talked earlier about disagreement about, well, the Lord's Supper. And actually, Christians will disagree here. I could map out for you various ways in which Christians have understood these issues, and each of them has its strength and its weaknesses. And that's the point I think you need to appreciate, that we need to think these things through and say, I thought this through very carefully. On balance, this is what seems to work best for me. And therefore, that's why I'm going to go with. So it's a very, very hard question to answer, as you can see. I mean, one person did ask as well, um, what do you think of young earth creationism specifically? And that, of course, is the view that it, God literally created in six 24 hour days and that we should read those early chapters of Genesis in that way. What what what's your perspective on that particular way of reading Genesis? Well, my perspective on that particular way of um, reading Genesis is that it does make certain assumptions. I mean, you, you always bring certain assumptions when you read the Bible. One of them is, of course, that there is a, a, a essentially continuous narrative here with no breaks in between. 
But of course, one possibility might be that this happens, then there's a long interval, and then this happens. So we need to be very careful about that. Old Earth creations would say there is there is precisely such a very long gap between um, the, the beginning and the actual um, uh, working out of these things. The other thing I would say is that the, the language of days is not as straightforward as you might think. Uh, and that, again, is something that someone like John Lennox talks about quite a lot, tries to make the point that we need to be aware it's not simply 24 hours. We now understand it. It might be better translated as ages or epochs. We can go on like that. We've got another question here. Um, do you want to do this one? Yeah, Liz? well, it, it follows on, really. Um, Miriam Windsor asks, if life on a... It, if is life on earth still if, if life on if earth. life on earth is still evolving what do you think is the next step for human evolution are we really god's final design well that is that's a great one isn't it i mean and we I should think, say we know miriam and she's a scientist so okay. i think miriam hi it's a great question um if i were to put on my scientific hat for a few seconds uh, what i would say is that if you think about human development there's the biological side of things and then there's the cultural side of things and actually, I'm not sure, you know, whether we're continuing to develop biologically, but in terms of culture, we are. And therefore, the, the future of humanity may be tied up with um, how we progress as societies, whether we fall to bits, whether we end up having societies which, in effect, make us intensely vulnerable to viruses, you know, that sort of thing. These are real questions. And I think that that really one of the things that really strikes me about the New Testament is the emphasis on the need for certain communal virtues, which are what are needed to see us through. But as you will know, there are a group of people called transhumanists who say we can technologically enhance humanity. And I, I think this is very, very odd because we're told that if you do this, it'd be hugely expensive, but you might live for 500 years. And of course, my my take on this is, well, um, there are Americans listening, but most of the people who are enhanced themselves will be Americans because they can afford it. Uh, uh, but the difficulty is we'll simply find that um, there are too many people on the on the earth that we run out of food resources. So, you know, we end up having wars, we end up having famines. So I don't think technological enhancement really solves the problems. I think what we need to do is learn how to get on with each other and look after each other. And actually, that might be the best thing we can do for each other. Ruth, do you want to take the next one? Sure. Alistair, I might change direction slightly because there seem to be a few questions around doubt. Um, so Callum, I'm not even going to attempt his surname because it sounds very complicated, but he's asking this from the unbelievable YouTube. Sorry, Callum, I don't want to butcher your surname. Um, he says, I love Christian apologetics and Christianity. Oh, sorry, I love Christian apologetics and Christianity just makes sense. Yet I must admit that I seem to be fighting doubts all of the times all of the time. Could you please give some advice on battling doubt? And then there's another question, which is kind of similar from Sam, also on the Unbelievable YouTube. And he says, if Jesus is who he says he is, and the tomb was in fact empty, can we be absolutely certain that we can trust him without a doubt? He also then says, bless you. So there's obviously a few questions there around yeah, doubt. Yeah. So yeah, if well, you could give any advice. Well, Callum and Sam, thank you both very much for getting in touch like us. Um, when I was young myself, um, I really did feel that you had to be able to give absolutely certain answers to all these questions. And I, I no longer feel that that is so, that actually um, we're just not like that as, as human beings. So let, let me just, if I may explain what I mean by that. What I'm saying is that um, any big question in life, is there a God? 
If you're an atheist, you haven't proved there's no God. You believe there's no God. In fact, when I moved from atheism to Christianity, actually, I moved from a faith that there is no God to a faith that there is a God. And while I was an atheist, I doubted. You know, it seemed to me the evidence was ambiguous. that I couldn't prove what I believed. In fact, you may have watched that debate between Richard Dawkins and Rowan Williams at Oxford back in 2012. And you'll notice that Richard Dawkins found he could not prove that there was no God. And in the end, in the end, seemed to say he was an agnostic. Really, really interesting. So the point I'm trying to make is you can prove very simple things, two and two make four, things like that. But when it comes to big things, what you can say is, I trust that this is right. I found this. It seems to work. It's wonderful, but I can't prove it's right. And really, I think we've got to learn to live with that. What Christian apologetics is saying is there are excellent reasons for thinking this is right. There are excellent reasons for saying this makes sense of things. But in the end, you can't absolutely prove this is right. And that's why the Christian idea of faith is so important. Faith is not saying, hey, uh, I'm just going to take, take a leap in the, into the dark. It's much more saying this is so good. And I feel in my heart of hearts, this actually is right. I feel that God is calling me. It's, if you like, an informed faith. It's saying I'm not leaping into the dark, but into the hands of a God who knows me and loves me. And that's a very different thing. So what I would say to Callum in particular is set your doubts in context. It's not just you. If, you're, if you have atheist friends, they have the same problem. They may not admit it, but the problem's are there. If your friends who are politicians and are trying to figure out what they think about things like how to behave with COVID, they will have the same thing about what's the best thing to do. We don't know. So we trustfully say this seems to be the best thing to do. So that is the human situation. We cannot prove the beliefs that really matter. So we have to say these are very good reasons for thinking it's right. And we talk to each other about these things. Again, apologetics is about talking to other people. And in this book, one of the things I talk about a lot is how, as I made my own journey of faith, I benefited enormously from reading other people, talking to other people and being encouraged by other people. So it's very important to talk to people about these issues and realize that maybe they experience them as well. Finally, think of Matthew 28. You know, where Christ, the risen Christ appears to his disciples and some worshipped him, but others well, others doubted. They weren't really sure. Um, but I think perhaps they became sure later. But the point I'm trying to make is it's very natural to doubt. And in effect, doubt very often is about realizing the questions we haven't thought through. And as an apologist, I very often found that my own doubts set my agenda for engagement and discovery. I'm not sure about this, right? I'm going to look into it because then that sorts me out and maybe I can help sort out other people as well. It's often the double-edged sword of apologetics that you, you said yourself that as a teenager, you were someone who wanted straight answers, black and white. You wanted everything to be clearly mapped out. And I think many people go into apologetics because of that desire and because it, it promises almost that sense of now I'm going to get the answer. And of course, the more you get into it, the, the quick you quickly realize it's it's more complicated than I imagined to start with. And and in a sense, um, it's a, almost an idol, I think, sometimes mm. this idea of I will come out with a, a copper bottom proof of, of Christianity, there will always be room for doubt in that sense. It's, it's not something you, you can escape. Um, but I, I think that applies in both directions for the mm. skeptic as much as the Christian. Um, 
we got um, on on that. Um, you mentioned Richard Dawkins and his uh, his debate with Rowan Williams, and of course, you've had your own conversations with Dawkins over the years and written some books. Uh, Andrew Owen wants to know: Have you engaged any further with Richard Dawkins' work recently? Uh, Andrew says, "I found Outgrowing God, his most recent book, extremely disappointing." I don't know if you've had a chance to read that one, Alistair, and and what what. Yes, I have had a look at it. I have to say. Um... That is exactly how I would describe it. Um, it was just, well, my atheist friends thought it was an embarrassment. Um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not quite sure how to put this. I mean, he's getting old. Um, he's off the boil, and I just, I just feel that I wish he hadn't written that book because people remember it as a rather, a rather feeble and inadequate answer. And Rupert Shorts wonderful riposte to it, Outgrowing Dawkins, I think basically it's a far better book um, because it, it really just shows how the whole thing is terribly badly written and badly argued. So I think that is really important. When I heard Richard Dawkins was writing a book of that kind, I thought, well, this, is, this could be a classic, you know, an atheist manifesto for young people. It's not. It, it's, it's, it's childish in the wrong sense of the word. <laughs> Well, uh, you were trying desperately to be polite there. I could tell, Alistair, but, but you, you couldn't hold back quite from, from, from making your feelings plain. Um, uh, yeah, um, should, should we go for this one? Um, do you want to read this one out, Luce? It's back yeah. to the issue of doubt. Yeah. Okay. One more. Um, all right. You, you say in the book, what if we simply have to learn to live with a degree of uncertainty and doubt? How do you practically live with unanswered questions? That's a really good question. So whoever, whoever asked that, thank you very much. It, it's a really good question. Practically, what you do is you read the New Testament closely. And what you notice is that the images of shadow or twilight or darkness are there all the time. We are not walking. We, you know, we're walking through the dark, if you like. We're, you know, we don't, we're walking by faith, not by sight. That means we don't see things absolutely clearly. And what I find really helpful is an image that C.S. Lewis uses. Um, it, it's, it's very well known. He says, I believe in Christianity, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And the point that Lewis is making is that Christianity is like a, a sun that illuminates a landscape. So you see it more clearly than you otherwise would, but you don't see everything clearly. There's still bits of shadow. And the point is you've got to learn to live with those. And that, I think, is really the important thing. Ruth, do you want to take one? Yeah, I suppose in some ways this is kind of related to doubt because it's often the means of lots of people's doubts. But we've had a question um, again from the unbelievable YouTube saying, what is your solution to the problem of evil? I'm aware that's obviously a huge question, um, but would you just say a little bit about the problem of evil? I will. And I think that evil, suffering are things that are really important. And one of the one of the things that I do um, feel very strongly about is that when I read Richard Dawkins, he does not give us an intellectual framework which allows us to distinguish between good and evil. And yet when I watch a film like, well, Schindler's List, you know, I see something I call evil and I want to do something about it. And if you like, one of the things that's very important is that Christianity gives you a framework to be able to say there are certain things that are wrong and shouldn't be there. And we should be doing something about them. That to me is very important. But I think your questioner is probably also getting at another issue as well, which is, 
you know, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? And of course, that is a really important question. And there are many answers I could give. But one of the problems is that very often um, we human beings who have been given a degree of autonomy, a degree of freedom by God, actually misuse that freedom. And that to me is a, a, a really significant issue that actually, um, you know, very often um, when we see the good thing that we know we ought to be doing, we actually go into something quite different. Think of Paul in Romans chapter seven, where he's talking about, you know, the, the good that I want to do, I can't do it. I do. Instead, I do this evil. What's wrong? And there is something about us which makes us predisposed to do this. And that's why the Christian idea of sin and, of course, the idea of redemption is so important. What I would say is that actually, as a Christian, I sometimes feel that the real question is not so much how do I understand why there is evil as the practical question, how do I cope with evil and do all that I can to try and make this world a better place? And that I think is really important because when I read the book of Revelation, there was vision of the new Jerusalem. There'll be no more death, no more crying, no more suffering. It gives us this vision that makes us think we ought to be trying to make the world more like that. And that animates me to want to try and do things just as I know it animates many Christians to want to go and work in the health service, to work in the key professions, to make this world a better place, given this God-given vision of the way things could be. Got a question here from Alexander Darakot. It's a sort of personal question at one level. Um, has Professor McGrath faced any opposition and resistance from both the scientific and Christian communities? And I suppose I'd be interested in going back to the start in the book as well about, you know, when you first became a Christian, what did your scientific friends think of that? Did they think you'd gone mad? Um, and, and obviously, as, as you've gone on, has there been pushback from others in the scientific community as you've tried to, you know, bring out the complementarity between science and faith and equally, I suppose, Christians who maybe haven't agreed with your positions either. Yes. So, so what's, what, yeah, how did it begin though with, with the, the way people reacted to your conversion? Well, I think people felt that uh, I was slightly mad when I moved from um, being an atheist to being Christian. You know, what do you do that for? And I tried to explain to them I'd found something really exciting. I want to try and share it with them. And they, they were very patient and listened, but didn't quite get it. Although I have to say some of them now do, which is very exciting. But you see, the problem is that we our culture is saturated with this idea that science and faith are necessarily at war with each other. And that's the idea which really pervades Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. But historians will tell you that's just not the case. And the reason why so many people, in effect, think there is this tension between science and faith is that there's this expectation that there should be as a result of this, um, this historical stereotype, which modern scholarship really has dismantled. So what I would say is that um, in recent years, there's been a sort of lessening of hostility for a number of reasons. One is that people realize history is not that simple. If you look at the, the history of many British scientific institutions, most of them were begun by clergymen. And that's a very important fact. But I think the main point I want to make is that um, there's a growing realization that actually in this world, um, we need religious people and non-religious people to come to to work together on solving things like climate change and things like that and actually scientists are becoming much more receptive to what religious people are doing in terms of their thoughts about science and also their commitment to trying to to make the world a better place so i see a new synergy emerging 
If you take Edward O. Wilson, who in many ways is very critical of religion, he will say, look, I do criticize it, but actually they have got some very good ideas <laughs> and will want to work with that. So what I see is, if you like, a, an increased willingness to have conversations, to work together, even if we haven't resolved our disagreements. Do I face hostility? Yes, I do. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm happy to live with that and always try and explain why I think like this, why I think other views might be open to challenge, to try and say, no, I'm not being irrational. If anything, this makes so much sense that I think I might be able to persuade you if we had enough time to talk about it properly. I mean, I, I've noticed, I think, that the, the really anti-religious sort of sentiment of the new atheism has has waned, really, in the last sort of decade or so since it, it had its peak. And and actually, I see a lot of secular voices. You mentioned already people like uh, Gray and others who who are actually reminding us, actually, that that science doesn't explain it all and and that secularism isn't necessarily some panacea for the world and that actually maybe we shouldn't throw out religion quite so readily. Um, it, one of the interesting characters on that front in, in recent years, of course, has been Jordan Peterson. Now, I'm throwing these questions at you completely blind, Alistair. So are you familiar at all with Jordan Peterson, what he's been saying and writing in recent years? I have, yes. I mean, I read his book, Maps of Meaning, some time ago, and oh, I right. followed him on YouTube. And obviously, he's a slightly controversial figure. Yeah. Well, you you were probably reading him before anyone else was then, if you read Maps of Meaning, which was was his book before his really famous book. But but um, there are a couple of questions here uh, about him, and I think I think he's a, a figure of great interest to many people. Um, so, uh, someone calling themselves Mister Worcester asks, "What do you think of Jordan Peterson's view on God and the Christian myth?" And another question here from Raphael says. What do you think C.S. Lewis would say to this recent trend of seeing the Christian message as functionally useful for life, but not necessarily metaphysically true, as people like Jordan Peterson sometimes seem to say? And in fact, this takes me back to a year ago, Alistair, when you joined me on stage for a conversation with Brett Weinstein, where this was the exact question we were asking. Yes, yes. Uh, is it useful or is it true? Um, and that seems to be a sort of theme that runs through some of these new thinkers here, that we shouldn't throw it out because it is useful. The question is, is it true? So so what what do you think C.S. Lewis would say to, to, to those who seem to be saying that kind of thing these days? Well, I think one thing I want to say immediately is that in one sense, this is progress because Richard Dawkins is saying it's not true and it's useless. In fact, it's 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 it's, it's, it's unhealthy. I mean, people people are just saying, look, he's wrong. That 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 this serves a very useful purpose. My point is, it serves a very useful purpose because it's right. It's true. It's something you can rely on. It's not something that's invented. It's something which is given to us and entrusted to us. And actually, it needs to be there when it's rightly understood. It can be really important. So I would want to argue that the utility of Christianity is grounded in its truthfulness. So that, that to me is very, very important. And therefore, as Christians, we have to do two things at one and the same time. One is live out its usefulness, show it works. But at the same time, say, look, I need to tell you what is so exciting about the Christian faith. It's grounding in history, its ability to make sense of things. And those things, I think, need to be held together. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a kind of moral therapeutic theism, which says, hey, religion makes you feel good. We all feel good. That's it. No, it's not. No, it's about stepping into this wonderful vision of reality, which is right. And then seeing what you can do for the world and for each other within the context of that vision of reality. I, I do sometimes feel like um, 
a lot of these folk are sort of worried about the effects of losing religion effectively they 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 can see the value of what the judeo-christian tradition has has bred um the uh, and in that sense they're worried at the idea of simply losing it and what will fill that vacuum but they can't quite bring themselves to say and it's actually true but they would almost like it to be true i often get that sense that that if it's almost as though they're going on their own journey of, of doubt and faith and asking could 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 it be true and 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 be useful rather than just one or the other but but um that thank you that's a really helpful answer i thought um ruth what, what would you like to ask next so um, I've had a question in uh, through Facebook from a youth worker who he is, he's a youth worker, but he also studied biblical studies. And his question, I think, is probably twofold. So he he's basically saying, how would you encourage youth workers and pastors um, and people like that to do biblical studies? So I suppose that's that's one question. How do we encourage people to study it in the first place? But I think there's probably a second part to that, which is if someone is going to be studying theology, I guess, particularly in a, in a secular context, in, in a university context, is there any advice that you would give them? Well, I think uh, that's a really good question. So let, let me talk about the second part first, mm -hmm. which is what advice would I give them in a secular context? I think that what you need to, to ask yourself is, why am I studying this in the first place? And why were these texts written in the first place? And the answer is, they were not written to be studied for literary purposes or anything like that. They're, they're all about trying to convey something of immense importance and excitement. And in one sense, in reading scripture, we're trying to recapture that sense of excitement, trying to get a sense of the directions leading us and always asking, what difference does this make to me as a person? If this text is right, what difference does it make to me? And that's why the New Testament epistles are so important, because, of course, they, um, they are very much about how the gospel affects the way in which we live. What I would say to you as you read scripture is this, it is very easy to get overwhelmed by technical questions, uh, by people who in effect spend a lot of time asking about literary genres or who write commentaries on biblical text and the first hundred pages of their book is about what everyone else thought about this. I think what I would want to say to you is that actually we can indeed understand scripture, but really scripture is there partly to transform us, to give us a vision of who Christ is. And Martin Luther, many years ago, asked this question, does this inculcate Christ or not? And the point he was trying to make is that, in effect, Scripture does its job best when it exhibits Christ, when it gives us a vision of who Christ is and difference that it makes, and, in effect, brings us closer to Christ. So we walk away from this biblical engagement feeling, I now have a deeper sense of this, or I feel closer to Christ, or I really have a better sense of what he wants me to do. So what I would say is that you need to have a very strong sense of what you are getting out of this engagement with the text. It's transformative. And for me, that really is a very important point um, to to emphasize, not just understanding, but allowing this text to take you and move you ahead. We've got one here and we're, we're approaching the end of our time, Alistair. We really appreciate the, the amount of time and, and just the way you've handled all of these questions we, we've thrown at you blind. What's the next one, Luke? So changing subject, really. Um, this question comes from Duncan Kay and he says, what do you say to Christians who say we don't need to worry about the environment or climate change and we should just trust in God? Well, Duncan, that, that's a great question and a very good one to end with because... Um, uh, it really highlights some very big issues. I, I do have Christian friends who, who do think like this. 
What I would say to this is this. I want you to do is to imagine you have a friend, a very special friend, and the friend has to go away for a while. And the friend says, look, I've got something that's really important, that really matters. Could you look after it for me while I'm away? And you kind of away, mess it up. You know, you just don't look after it properly at all. And the friend comes back and the friend is very disappointed with you because you've let him down. Something that really mattered to him was entrusted to you. What did you do? Nothing. You messed it up. The Christian doctrine of creation is saying to us very simply, this is God's world. And it's entrusted to us. And what are we doing with it? You know, and it really is, is inviting us to ask some very uncomfortable questions. You know, are we really looking after this? Or are we simply exploiting it for our own ends? I'm not saying that this solves all the issues at all, but I think it does give you a framework of understanding that it's not just saying, hi, God, you're great, it's wonderful, but actually to, to worship God is to accept our responsibility for what God has entrusted to us. What's he entrusted to us? Well, looking after each other, growing in our faith, caring for creation. It's all part of the deal. And what I think we really need to do is to say that maybe the importance of creation care has been brought home to us frighteningly in the last 20 or 30 years. And it's really not so much asking us to invent something. It's asking us to retrieve something, something that perhaps we've let go of, but we can recover it and try and help out here and do it as an act of witness. We're not simply saying, let's go along with this, um, this latest bandwagon. It's rather, if God is indeed creator, and if the creation matters to God as we know it does, then it ought to matter to us. So what can we do? And it doesn't answer the question, what do we do? Although we can begin to map out some possibilities, but it does get that conversation underway, I think. Thank you very much, Alistair, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, all the best. And uh, well, if this is your last book, it's a very good one. But I, I, I hope maybe we might you might change your mind down the line. <laughs> Who knows? But um, well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. It was great fun hosting that live conversation with Alistair back in 2020. Now, whether his memoir, Through a Glass Darkly, is his last book remains to be seen, but at least less writing gives him more time to be here on this podcast. And with some exciting new, fresh episodes with Alistair coming soon uh, from next week, we're going to be looking at several of Lewis's best-known essays. C.S. Lewis was, of course, a prolific writer, both of long and short-form thought uh, and some of his essays and sermons like the weight of glory are classics in their own right so we'll be exploring those in the next season of the podcast uh, don't forget you can now find out all about this show keep up to date get bonus content and even support us as well from our new website premierunbelievable.com and that's also the place to click on shop to get the digital download of our recent conference with alistair mcgrath in case you missed it but for now thanks for being with us and see you next time Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.